Turn to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Today we'll be covering the first six verses of chapter 39. And if you have that, please stand for the reading of God's word. Reading from the ESV, uh, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Brothers and sisters, the word Lord, let's ask his blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for this wonderful gift that you've kept preserved for us so that we might know you, um, that we might know your ways. We thank you for this because if you had not done that, there's no way we could get that information on our own. You had to reveal it to us. And Lord, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to be gathered as a community of believers uh, and to think about you. And we want you to be honored. We ask that you would be glorified. I do confess I deeply need your help, that I recognize it's not through my efforts that uh, your will is accomplished, but through the power of your spirit. And I do ask him to minister to us now. Uh, I need the word just as much as everyone else who's listening. And I pray, Father, that you would work in each of our hearts to produce the results that are pleasing to you. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So it's almost been 20 years ago. Uh, in the year 2000, there was a book that was published by Multnomah Press. Uh, it was uh, authored by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. Perhaps you've heard of it. The book was called The Prayer of Jabez breaking through to the blessed life. The book was set around uh, a prayer that is found in the book of First Chronicles chapter 4, just two verses, about a specific man in a genealogy, in the midst of the genealogy that's broken up, and his mom had called him Jabez because she had borne him in pain, and he had prayed a prayer with kind of three requests in it where he asked that his territory be enlarged, that he not cause pain, and that the Lord's hand would be, be with him. And so the book went on to, to talk about this prayer and praying it in the lives of believers. And one part that was summed up in the book that he said, I think best expresses what he wanted to get across in the books. He said, I challenge you to make the, the Jabez prayer for blessing part of the daily fabric of your life. To do that, I encourage you to follow unwaveringly the plan outlined for the next 30 days. And by the end of that time, you'll be noticing significant changes in your life. And their prayer will be on its way to becoming a treasured, lifelong habit. 
He believed that if you prayed this prayer, it was a way that God would always respond to it and then bring about blessing in your life. Now, to the surprise of many and to the, to, to the joy of the, uh, the, the press, at least the Multnomah, uh, this became a bestseller. Uh, it ended up selling, by the year 2008, it had sold over 10 million copies. That put it into the Diamond Club. It received, back in 2001, uh, and this is a mouthful, Evangelical Christian Publishers Association Gold Medallion Book Award of the Year. And uh, in addition to that, of course, because of the amount of sales, it topped the New York Times bestseller list. But what was interesting about the book was not so much the book itself, but what it said about what was going on in the Christian community, or at least the hunger in the Christian community. By the sales of this book, it said something about the Christian community that was that inside of the Christian community, there is a desire to succeed just like there is a desire outside to succeed. Not that succeeding is a, a bad thing, but there is this desire to be blessed, to get ahead in life. Uh, it's this reality that we all love to be on the winning side, and especially when the winner is us. Uh, even it happened to me in seminary when I was in my mid-20s. I remember being in seminary, having just taken a few classes in seminary, and I started to dream a dream a dream that one day I would be the next Tony Evans, <laughs> that I would lead a mega church. I even came up with a name for the mega church. I had all the ministries listed out. I even started to file to think about the colors of the pews and what they would be, right? Now, as I came to realize later, that was probably just a reality of lack of self-awareness and a touch of pride that was going on. But, but because that thing does happen, it's probably the same reason why we have often heard that Jeremiah 29, 11, for, the, for I know the plans that I have to you, has become a favorite verse among Christians. Because in us, there's this desire to get ahead in life, to be lifted to a higher place. But the question is that I think his book raises, and I would ask is, is praying a daily prayer, reciting a prayer found in the Bible daily, the real source of success. Well, we'll find out the answer in just a moment. For now, we want to return to the text and pick up where we left off uh, in the last couple of weeks. Well, we return to the life of Joseph this week after the scandalous affair of Judah last week. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen online. It was an awesome sermon uh, done with tact by uh, one of our members of our teaching team, Mike Bongo. Now, for Joseph, just to kind of remind you, since our mind had been on Judah, kind of remind you what we know about Joseph up to this point. So when we met Joseph, Joseph was the next to the youngest son of Jacob. So he has 12 sons. He's the 11th son. And we find out that he is the favorite son of his father because he had been born to his favorite wife. And so as a result, he becomes the favorite son. We find out, though, that he grows up in his father's house. He has a reputation for being the obedient child. He's faithful to the father's request. But it does seem like he is somewhat, by the age of 17, a little bit spoiled, perhaps a little bratty when it comes to uh, engaging with his brothers. But nevertheless, he is a child who does what his father requests. We also find out that this, uh, this sin that's been plaguing the family has continued on into Jacob's family, where there are open displays of favoritism, which cause animosity in the hearts of his brothers toward him. And so what do they finally do when they have enough of it? They finally decide to do something about it. 
They first decide that they're going to kill him, but then decide not to do that and come up with an alternative plan, which is, hey, we can at least make some money out of it. Let's just sell him into slavery. So the last that we hear about Joseph's life at the end of chapter 37 is that he's been sold into slavery, and now he's been sold again. Verse 30, chapter 37, verse 6. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we come to, to 39 because we've had this whole uh, set of events that have happened in 38 that have taken us away and taken us forward in time. And so the, the narrator restates what he stated in verse 36 at the very first verse of 39 in order for us to know that he wants to go back in time. That, that we're traveling back in time. The other events have moved us forward. Now he wants us like a movie says, well, let, let's go back to where we were at in the other story. And so now he leaps back. And we see that in chapter 39, verse 1, when it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, and uh, I'm sorry, bought, bought down, brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, uh, the captain of the guard, and an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So we find ourselves back in time when Joseph is 17 years old and he's been sold uh, into the, the custody uh, to, the, to the ownership of Potiphar. What we discover about Potiphar is that he's no ordinary individual, which I don't think is um, by accident who he ends up with, but he's a, a high-ranking government official. He's someone who's in the court of Pharaoh. Now, because of the word that's used to describe Pharaoh, um, Potiphar, we're not necessarily sure exactly what role he was playing in the court, what his job was. It might have been a military role or a culinary role, depending on how you interpret that term. And so there's some ambiguity there. But what we do know is there is a reality that he is a man of importance and a man of status, a man of wealth, uh, and he has a lot of possessions as we see play out uh, in the text. So he's an important person. Now, most scholars or some scholars lean towards the military option because of what transpires later in the story. But whatever the case is, this is a high-ranking government official who has a lot of stuff. And that's the kind of idea that we need to, to get about Potiphar. But in light of this, we realize now at, at verse 1 that now we're back in time. Joseph is 17 years old. But what you have to realize is that by when you get to verse 6, right before you get to verse 7, Joseph is 28 years old. 11 years of his life passes in these six verses. But in these 11 years, there's something interesting that's happening in his life. He's going through a progression of upward mobility. He starts off as an ordinary slave. He's sold into the institution of slavery. And as we know, there are various occupations you can have as a slave. Here, by God's design, he ends up as a house slave instead of as a field slave. Now, we do know from some ancient texts that this is not unheard of. Uh, and there's been records of slave names that have been uh, recorded, that we found a list of slave names. And, and often, sometimes, what the Egyptians would do is take those who were of Asian or Semitic descent and place them in more skilled jobs in the home and then take other Egyptians and who were in slavery and put them in the field. So this is consistent with that kind of thing that we find in some of the ancient documents. So, so Joseph, being a Semitic and Asian, uh, has been placed uh, within the home to, to serve in the home, which affords him a unique opportunity. Because he's in the house, and that's where Potiphar is in that area, he's able to observe Joseph's performance. And it always seems like Joseph, for some reason, makes the right decision when it comes to his work. And it seems like whatever work that he's assigned, whatever task he's, he's given to do, he always succeeds at that task. 
He has a batting average of 100. He never fails. He never goes down. It's always the one who gets the job done. And so as a result of that, when you have someone who's giving that kind of star performance, what do you do? Well, you promote them and give them more responsibility until they reach their level of incompetence, in which then you keep them at that level. But here, Joseph doesn't seem to have any incompetence as Potiphar then lifts him up to be his personal assistant. And once he gives him time to, to serve as his personal assistant, because he does the, such a great job, knocks the ball out of the park, he says, you know what, this guy is so great at doing his work, why don't I just put everything I have under his charge? And that's exactly what we see happening in the text. He ends up promoted to where he has put over everything in Pharaoh's house. Now, we do know from ancient documents also when there was a large house with lots of slaves and there were different departments, they would have superintendents, uh, upper management of various areas, whether you were over the field, the house, or the kitchen, you might be placed in one of those. But Joseph is put in a unique role. He is the superintendent of superintendents. He oversees all the other department heads. He's the head guy over the department. He's second only to Potiphar in this house. Now, we might ask, how is it that he ends up performing at such a high level, outperforming any other slave, because he does remain a slave despite all the promotions he gets, he's still a slave. How does he get this Midas touch? What is his secret to success? The author unabashedly answers for us in verse 2. Notice what the text says. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Bible wants us to know the narrator who's telling the story says to us that the secret source to Joseph's success is none other than the Lord's presence and hand of blessing upon him. And the narrator stresses this over and over again in the text. We notice this through the repetition of the Lord's name in the text in such a small amount of verses. He wants us to get the idea that it's not Joseph's intellect, although he has that. It's not Joseph's wisdom, although he has that. It's not his good looks, although he has that. It is the fact that God is sovereignly behind the scenes, working the situations out, that everything his hand touches turns into gold. God is the one who's driving and causing things to work out. If you look at verse 3, you'll notice there God is mentioned twice. God is the one who ensures that the results of Joseph's work always work out well for his master and for the state that he's over and for whatever assignment he's put on. We look at verse 4 and we see that God's blessing is, is what prompts Potiphar to promote him in the house. It's not Potiphar's natural desire to do it, but when he sees how blessed Joseph is and what he does, he says, wow, this guy's a winner. I need to put him over more stuff. And so that's exactly what he does. God is the one driving it. Who doesn't want a goose that lays golden eggs? Uh, in verse 5, we look at the text. We see Joseph there twice, that when he's promoted to the superintendent, it's from the time that he's promoted that all of Potiphar's house prospers. Potiphar is blessed because of Joseph being placed in charge. Notice the Lord's name is mentioned twice there as well. See, the, the writer wants us not to put the focus on human ability, but on the focus on God's sovereign hand in Joseph's life. The key, the secret to his success is that God had chosen to prosper Joseph and to lift him up. And because of that, he was lifted up. We see here in light of this text, success then is defined in this specific context as faithful stewardship of the holdings of the master, which are increased 
and thus leads to increased responsibility, decision-making power, and influence in the lives of others. We already had seen this before in Jacob's life when he was in his uh, father-in-law's house, Laban's house, when he was given the opportunity to serve and oversee his holdings, and God blessed what Jacob did, and Laban's holdings increased such that when Jacob said, hey, man, it's time for me to leave and go home, Laban said, please don't leave. I have learned by divination that the only reason that I'm blessed is because you're in my life. Please stay here so that I can continue to be blessed and my stuff can continue to grow. So that's kind of the idea, right? So, that's, so this is the same thing. He's blessed because God has someone that he has chosen to bless. But there's something in this text that I want to, to draw out to focus our time on, which is putting the lens on God. Because what we observe in Joseph's life is a reality that runs throughout Scripture and throughout human history. And it's simply this truth, that God is the one who exalts people. God is the one who exalts people. The psalmist who would write many years later, Asaph, would record this concept when he said this in a psalm. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner put it this way. In other words, search where you will. There is no other arbiter but God. Therefore, no worldly rank that is anything but provisional. The prophet Daniel, in reviewing and watching the lives of kings and how they work and what God does in the world, said this about this idea of how things work. He said, he said this, that he, being God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and set them, sets, them, sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. We simply need to look throughout Scripture, and we'll see many examples of this. Joshua was promoted to lead the people of Israel, and God lifted him up in their eyes, Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. David was lifted from being a shepherd, a simple shepherd boy in his family, not even the most prominent of his brothers, to being the king over the land, 2 Samuel chapter 22, 1 Chronicles chapter 14. Hezekiah was taken and exalted as king, though of a smaller nation, above the other nations that were surrounding him, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and Daniel, who was taken as an exile, he was taken into captivity, was lifted up to a prominent office over the whole empire of Babylon, Daniel chapter 1. We see examples of this with non-Israelite kings as well. God says in Jeremiah chapter 25, Ezekiel chapter 29, that he was the one who chose Nebuchadnezzar to rule over the empire of the world. In the same way he chose Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 44 and Isaiah chapter 45, that he had put Cyrus in position to serve a specific end. And the Lord Jesus, when we come to him, when we get to the New Testament era, seems to keep this same line of thought about God and the way things work in the world. When he was being, right before he was crucified, when he was in a conversation with Pilate and Pilate uh, prompted him to, to give an answer and said, don't you realize that I have the power to set you free? You need to talk to me, man. I'm the person of importance. I have the ability to change the direction of your life. But I want you to notice what Jesus said in response to Pilate. Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Uh, that's a way of saying from God. That the only reason you can do what you do, you have the position that you have in life is because God has allowed her to decide for you to serve in that role 
right now. That's the only reason you can do what you can do. Now, that does bring me back to another question. Why is it that God has chosen to exalt Joseph among his brothers, as we see here in the text? Well, when we look at the scripture narrative, this is what we find out. At least it appears this way to my eye. When God exalts people, he does it for a purpose because he wants them to occupy that position of influence because it allows them to achieve the ends that he wants achieved in the world. Now, let me spoil the end of Genesis for you. I know we shouldn't do this, but I'll do it because you probably have already read it. But in Genesis, at the end, you'll find out why was Joseph exalted. He tells us, he sums it up in the end. After looking all of life's circumstances play out, which he didn't know early in life, but by then he's in his mid to late 50s. He says, you know what? The reason God brought me here and did all this stuff was so that I could save lives. That's why I have this position. God's intended purpose was for the salvation of many lives. We see a similar thing in the life of Esther. God lifted her up. He had gifted her with beauty so that she would end up as queen so that she could save lives. Nebuchadnezzar, different purpose. God lifted him up so that he might bring judgment upon the nations so that God's wrath might be fulfilled through him so that he would crush the nations under his foot so that God's justice would be played out in the world. When Cyrus was lifted up, God said the purpose for him hundreds of years before he even was born. He said the purpose was he was promoted to power so that he might end the exile of the people and so that he might rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by God's decree through Nebuchadnezzar some many years earlier. All of them had been promoted with a purpose in mind. See, God exalts people because he has something he wants done in the earth. Now, let's say you're listening to what I'm saying, but you're not buying it. I'm trying to sell it, but you're not buying it. You think differently in yourself. You say, no, hey, wait a minute. The only way to really get ahead in life is to promote yourself. We might refer to that as self-exaltation. And the reason you might think that way is because as you have observed human behavior, you're like, well, there are people that I know who don't think about God. They don't care about God. And yet they have some high positions in life. And if I just simply follow that path, I might find myself in a similar situation. That's until we read the text. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 indicates that those who follow that path will find ultimately out that it does not end well for them. Let me give you an illustration from history, taken straight out of Scripture. Now, perhaps you know as, as a Bible reader, perhaps you're not familiar, maybe you've just forgotten, but there was a period in Israel's history when Israel was ruled by a queen. Uh, it was from 841 to 835 B.C. Her name was Athaliah. Athaliah was the daughter of uh, that well-known king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And I know you probably don't want to be born to a bad family. Sometimes good people come out of bad families. But she, was, she didn't fall far from the tree. So she was like her parents. They were bad and she was bad. And it worked out because she buried a bad man who was the king of Judah. He was a wicked guy. She was wicked. They just went well together. They were right together, right? Two peas in a pod. And so she married him, the king of Judah. And when he died, they had had a son who was 22 years old. And at that point, he assumed the throne for his father. But he decided to follow in the path of his father and his grandparents. And so he was a wicked king. And one day he decided that he was going to do something in his first year of reign. He went to visit somebody. And boy, was he in the wrong place at the wrong time because there was an assassination plot to kill the person he was visiting. And as a result of that assassination plot, he got caught up in it and he got killed in the process. 
and he hadn't made one year of reigning. When his mother heard the word about her dear old son and how in his first year, before he even made his first year of reign, he was killed, she got an idea. She saw an opportunity. She said to herself, well, now the throne is empty. Who better to sit as ruler of this throne other than me? And you know what she did? She had all of her grandsons killed so that she could take the throne. And so she annihilated them. But there was one small problem. There was one child she had failed to annihilate. Because his aunt, who was married to the high priest, hid him, which she didn't know about, with his nurse in a bedroom. And when the, the, all the act was done and she was able to smuggle him out, she smuggled out that infant boy to the temple where the high priest hid him for six years of his life. When he had become six years old and he was old enough to take the throne, the high priest set up guards around the temple and brought the king out and announced him through formal ceremony that this is the rightful king of Israel. When the people saw him brought out and announced as the rightful king, they began to, to come out and scream and cheer, long live the king, long live the king, long live the king. And as Athaliah heard the commotion, she went out to see what was happening. And so she then, as the ruler at that point, began to yell out, treason, treason, treason. The high priest said, arrest her. She's not the rightful ruler. They took her, they arrested her, and they executed her. She sought to exalt herself, but in the end, although she enjoyed it for a while, she was humbled because that was not the place for her. See, in contrast to this mindset of self-exaltation, the Lord Jesus says to his followers, there is a different path of behavior that I want you to follow. He says, I want you to opt for humility. And so in his teaching, he he held this up and he gave examples of how, and even in the smallest areas of life, how people ought to operate, that is, his followers ought to operate in some of the small areas when people try to exalt themselves, even in small ways. And so he told this story in the New Testament. Let me rehearse it for you. This is what it said. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited both, you both, will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The one that's unstated in the text who's doing the exalting and humbling is God. Jesus says that the way for God's people to behave in life is with a spirit of humility. And this is exactly what we see modeled in Jesus' life. He lived with humility. He did not seek to offer or to exalt himself knowing what God uh, had for him. He never compromised to get positions of prominence by his own efforts. Even when he was tempted to take the shortcut, Satan said, I know God has chosen you to be the ruler of creation, to rule over all the peoples of the world. You don't have to do the cross thing. I'll give it to you right now. You just have to bow down and serve me. Jesus said no. When his brother said to him, well, listen, man, if you really want to have disciples, why don't you go out and show yourself to all the people so you can gain followers? Isn't that what you're after? And Jesus said, no. 
Even when the people said, man, this guy, boy, he is doing quite some work. Look at all the miracles he's doing. This has got to be the right guy. Let's make him king. Because that was not God's plan, Jesus humbled himself and would not allow them to exalt him without God's plan being fulfilled. And so Paul, years later, would sum up Jesus' life in that well-known passage of Philippians 2, and this is what he said about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means everywhere. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him so that like Joseph, he could save many lives. The pattern in Scripture is this. Jesus exalts those who humble themselves, but he humbles those who exalt themselves. Now, the good news for you is that you've been chosen for promotion. That's right. You've been chosen by God. If you are connected to faith, but connected to Christ by faith and you've repented of your sins and the spirit of God dwells in you, then God's long-term plan, future plan, is for you to be promoted because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So I'm in a community group, and in my community group, we are in the studying the book of Revelation. And uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. And in these seven letters to the seven churches, we ran across two outstanding promises from God given to Jesus, to his angel, to John, to give to the churches. And that's what, what it is. So let me share those with you if you're not familiar with them. Here's one, and these are not necessarily churches who are doing that great, but two outstanding promises. Here's one of them. The one, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. The second promise is this. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his, his throne. Now, you may wonder, what does conquer have to do with here? Well, in the context of Revelation, in the context of this text, what conquering means is the way that you conquer, the way that the believer conquers is by being faithful to Christ, persevering through persecution and not compromising with the world, being faithful to death. That's how you conquer. It's not something warlike. It is through giving up your life in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That's how we conquer as believers. See, the main hope for exaltation for the Christian is not necessarily something that happens in this life, although it may happen for you in this life. But the main hope for promotion for the Christian comes at the resurrection of the righteous. See, our lives are to follow the pattern of Christ's life. Cross now, crown later. Cross now, crown later. Now, does that mean that God does not exalt people until the future? No. There are examples of where God exalts people because he has certain purposes that he wants to accomplish in this world, in this type, and you may be one of those people. I'd say consider Mike Bongo. That's a story we're all familiar with. He started off here as a janitor of the church. And now God has elevated him and put him over ministries where he influences and takes care of the people who make up the church. God did that. 
See, like Joseph, some of us, God will choose to promote to positions of influence. And God may do that for you in your life. And if you're one of those people, when you get in that position of influence or power or rank, remember that God has chosen you to be in that place for a purpose. God has chosen you to do good for others. It's not for your material advancement, although you might enjoy some of that. It's to serve his purposes in the world. Is Joseph's experience a pattern for every Christian? I would say no. I would say we look at the story. We're not the Joseph of the story. We're more like the brothers of the story. We're those who have sinned against the faithful son, and we're in need of his forgiveness. Jesus is the faithful son who has endured suffering and has been exalted to the right hand of power, who has the ability to forgive us and grant us forgiveness and then to save our lives from death and destruction. He's the hero of the story. We're the supporting actors. That's what the story is really about. So our call is to be faithful to Christ. Now, if you don't receive achievement in this life, you can have hope that it will come for you in the next. But does it mean that if you don't get the advancement that you want in life, that God is not with you? No, I think about the many Christians in the world. This week I was sharing with my community group as well, just a movie I saw recently. Uh, it's a historical fiction piece called Silence. You may have seen the movie where it records kind of the events that were going on in Japan in the early 1600s after the shogun had united the country and put Christians out and Christians were persecuted and suffered. There were many who suffered and gave up their lives for Christ. There was no advancement in the way that we would think about it. And yet I do believe the Lord was with them. See, not every Christian is going to have the same experience we have, and yet there must be a way in which this text must be true for them, just like it's true for us. So the ultimate advancement is at the resurrection of the righteous. How do we respond to all of this in light of that? Well, the apostles, Peter and James, give us a pretty clear path to follow. James said it this way, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Peter says something similar. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, but he cares for you. Both James and Peter, or apostles of the Lord, say, don't seek to exalt yourself. Instead, choose the path of humility and trust that God, in time, as he sees fit because it's his world, will put you into the position that you need to be in. He will exalt you in, the, in, the, in time, whether it's in this life to some provisional position or ultimately in the life after, at the resurrection, when you're raised up in glory with Christ Jesus at his coming. Now, does this mean that we should be immoral, passive, or lazy because we trust God? No, trusting God doesn't mean any of those things. When we look at the text, we'll notice in each one of the lives of the people I mentioned earlier, like Joseph, they were hard workers. They did their job to the best of their ability, and God blessed the work that they did. That means they actually had to do some work. There is a human component to this equation, which I have not talked about in this message, but there are some things that scriptures alert us to that we ought to be people of moral integrity. We ought to be people who are disciplined in our lives, and we ought to be people who are diligent in our work. Those are things that are lifted up. We see that kind of talked about in Colossians chapter 3 at the end of the chapter, in Ephesians chapter 6 at the beginning of the chapter. These ideas that we're to work not to please men, but ultimately to please God. And the work that we do, God is the one who chooses how to use that and to elevate us to the position that he wants us in so that we might serve his purposes 
in the world. And when we take into consideration the parables of the talents that Jesus tells in Luke 19 and then in Matthew chapter 25, it frames out for us that whatever we receive in this life is an opportunity for stewardship of what God has because we will have a gift to give an account for what we have received in this life. And so in light of that, if we're followers of Christ, our idea of success has to be filtered through the lens of Scripture. Let me tell, come to my conclusion. I like what, what the way one writer sums up James 4.10 when the writer said this. Everybody wants to be exalted. We all want to be glorified. Maybe we won't say so. Maybe we don't feel it all the time, but part of the motivation for living according to the world system is to get exaltation for ourselves. But this comes in having the things we want getting the respect we feel we deserve, or living in comfort and pleasure we crave. But God asks us to quit the world's way of pursuing those things. Instead, he calls us to trust him, to exalt us when the time is right, without trying to get that glory for ourselves. I close by referring back to the life that has been impacting me and whose narratives I'm currently working through in my personal life uh, as a mentor to to help me find a good direction to live a Christian life, and it's the life of George Mueller, and I've shared about his life before. But as I looked at George, George Mueller's life and reflection, the reason I like to talk about him is because he's already completed his life. You look at people who are currently living, and you just don't know yet where their life is going to end up. It's still in process. When the story's over, then it's easier to talk about them. Uh, that's just kind of the way it works. Uh, and so in this particular case, George Mueller, what, what impressed me about his life was how he lived his life. Ultimately, he, he sought not to exalt himself, but he sought to live his life for the purpose of glorifying God and to be an encouragement to people to have faith in God by the way he lived his life. And by doing that, God ordered his life such that as he just sought to please God in his life, God directed his life in certain ways. First, he became a pastor of a church. And through that ministry, as he saw a need, he decided to, to serve God, honor God, and just simply decide to help people. And as he sought to just help people and educate them about God's word, it turned into a Bible institute that began to grow, not because of what he did, but simply because of God's blessing on what he did. And when that had grown, there was a need that showed up when it came to those who were orphans. And he just decided to help, just try to help out a little bit. He didn't have many resources. He used what he had and cared for the few that he had. And as he began to do that work, it began to grow, finally to the point of where he was able to care for 10,000 orphans. Because he was doing all this work, others wanted to know what he was doing. And so he began to write just to share so that he might encourage others' faith. So he ended up publishing books. And when he had got to the point in his life where he was no longer in a position to want to continue to oversee all those works, he faithfully turned those works over. And for the rest of his life, he went on a preaching tour around the world as people called for him to speak. God did all of that. He didn't end up a wealthy man, but he ended up a well-known man. And what struck me about his life was this, that the things that men often seek to give for themselves happened in his life, not because he sought those things, but because he sought simply to live faithfully under God's rule, and God just gave him those things. Now, for many of us, as Mike Bongo said in a sermon a few weeks ago, many of us within a few generations, our names are forgotten. Our own grandchildren won't even know who we are. And our great-grandchildren, well, we're just a distant memory. They know nothing about our lives. But George Mueller, you can still read about his life today. When you read a book on prayer, he's going to be one of the people who's always mentioned. His name has gone on. Why hasn't his name gone on? Because God has made it so. 
God is the one who establishes the names of the earth. He's the one who exalts people. So I say to you, live not your life for yourself to exalt yourself. Humble yourself under God, and he will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, the reality, Lord, that we are to live a life of faith and trust in you. We're to humble ourselves, not seek to get glory for ourselves, but trust ourselves to you and you in your sovereign care of the world, in the wonderful plan that you're working out for the good of humanity and for your glory. You will choose what needs to happen. Lord, if we'll be faithful in our work, the Lord, it was interesting that Joseph wasn't seeking those things, but the fact that your hand had been upon him because you had chosen him, that you blessed his work such that those who were not believers could not deny that you were blessing him and he was promoted. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room who has been diligent in their work and faithful and you've blessed their work and they've been promoted to those positions. Help them to remember, Lord, that they've been put in that place to serve your purposes and goals in the world. Don't let, don't let them think about themselves and what they can get out and live for themselves, but help them to be like Christ, to see their position as an opportunity to serve others, to do good for others to be a blessing to others. We pray that you help us to have the right perspective, knowing that one day, Lord, we will stand before you and give an account for the things you've entrusted to us in this life. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.